Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Stephen, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And today we are wrapping up this three-part series that we've been in on the topic of calling. If you're new or if you're visiting with us, if you missed the last two weeks, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news, always do the bad news first, right? The bad news is uh, you've kind of missed the main point of this whole series. <laughs> the first two weeks we talked about this concept of calling as it exists in our culture, as this internal motivation, this clear sense, whether it comes from God or from ourselves, that we're toward to proceed in a particular course of direction, especially as it relates to our work. There's a lot of focus on calling as it relates to work. And what we've seen in the, last, in the first two weeks is that if we, as Christians, go to the scripture and look for where we learn about how this happens and, 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 and what we should do to be able to discern this, what we find is it's just not there. That concept of getting really clear, specific direction in some sort of discernible or, or predictable way just isn't there. Lots of people hear from God in the Bible, but the, the concept of calling as we've understood it is just... It's not a concept that the New Testament writers talk about, but there is a calling that they talk about a lot. And that's what the first two weeks were about, is the calling that we all have to Christ, to union with him, to relationship with him. And it's a relationship that transforms every aspect of our lives, not just our work. And so if you missed the first two weeks, go back and listen. That was kind of the main thing. Um, if you missed it, you can find our podcast or on our website. The good news is this. Today, I'm gonna talk about the thing you wanted me to talk about for the last two weeks, the thing you thought I was gonna talk about for three weeks, we're gonna talk about work today. And I wanna talk, begin by addressing the question about this, this concept of calling, if it's not something that's in the Bible, and if it's not something that we as Christians are, are guided or given direction by the New Testament writers about how we should experience this, and yet it's something that, that both we as Christians, but also people outside the church talk about. Where did that come from? Like, where did this idea of calling come from? And so I want to talk about that a little bit today, because the truth is, we're kind of at fault. It kind of comes from, it's a concept that comes from the church. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of this word and where it comes from, so you can understand where the confusion has emerged and how we can begin to separate and think differently about this concept and how we think about our daily Work. So the fir for the first 300 years of the church's history, the Christians were persecuted. They were a persecuted minority. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, essentially the, the church had to go underground because their leader had been executed as an enemy of the state. And so people who heard this good news that we just celebrated about the forgiveness of sins and the opportunity to have a relationship with God that transforms our lives... That was something people came to and then they had to be very quiet about. They met in homes very secretively. They would meet around tables and they would celebrate communion together. And that was the basis of, of Christian worship for about 300 years. <clears throat> and then something really remarkable happened. In the year 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. He converted to Christianity. And instantly, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And overnight, everything began to change. Suddenly, people didn't have to be afraid about worshiping as Christians. They didn't have to be worried about being associated with this group that was once considered like a cult. They could meet in public, and they did. And more people started to join them, maybe out of curiosity, maybe because the emperor was a Christian, but people began flocking to these gatherings and the church began to grow slowly 
but surely. And in that process, the church became much more structured and organized. They built buildings. They selected people, leaders, who would, whose primary responsibility it would be to lead the church. And then that became a hierarchy. There would be local priests. And then there were bishops who were over all of those. And then there were cardinals. And then there was a pope. And then there were some people who, who began to withdraw from the complicated and messy and corrupted nature of life in big cities in the medieval world, and they began to live in intentional religious communities, monasteries. And this is where this concept of calling is born. In about the 13th century was the first time the word was used. It was probably used first in its Latin form, vocation. Vocatio means to call. So it was talked about by people who experienced an internal draw to enter into religious life. It was used in a very specific way for people who felt motivated to make the decision to enter into a celibate life of service to the church as a priest, as a monk, or a nun. So this is the primary place <clears throat> that the word was used during this time in, in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> and it was during this time that a hierarchy begins to develop within the church. That this work was a higher calling it was important spiritual work that people had to be selected by God and chosen to do, and they were set apart and different. Some work was more holy, more special, more important to God, and other work was more common and everyday. And there became a stratification in society and in importance between people and between the work that they did. <clears throat> now, one interesting thing I noticed in my research that a historian pointed out is it didn't really work this way for a lot of people. It wasn't like they actually felt an internal motivation, were motivated and called, and, and then entered into this celibate religious life. Some certainly did. There was, there was a large number who probably did, but a lot of people were entered into this life as children. Their parents would take them and, and put them into a monastery or into a convent, and they would enter this religious life without really a lot of choice of their own. There's an interesting other place that we see this word calling used repeatedly during this time. It was used by religious leaders, by bishops, by the Pope, and by kings to justify war made against Muslims to reclaim the Holy Land. We're called to retake the Holy Land from the infidels. This was a really complicated and dark time in the church's history, thus the Dark Ages. And then, in the middle of all of this corruption and confusion that had emerged in the church, which, by the way, when we look historically and the church gets intermingled with power, really bad things happen for the church. We get the worst end of that deal. And so in 1517, we see a young monk named Martin Luther rise and begin to speak against the corruption that he saw in his day. And among the many things that Luther took issue with in his time one of them was the hierarchy that had been created by the church between priests and religious leaders and everyday people. Luther asserted that no one should feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. No one should feel like there was a hierarchy that some people were more important than others or that their work mattered more to God than others. And he began to emphasize this concept of being faithful in their station of life. For Luther, this was a big part of understanding vocation and call and what this meant. Essentially, it meant you were born a blacksmith's son, so guess what? You're called to be a blacksmith. Like, you should embrace your station in life and instead be faithful to where God has called you. <clears throat> now, 
there was a really important and good thing that, that Luther did in this is he pushed against that hierarchy and the sacred and common divide that was so common in his day. The problem is <clears throat> he perpetuated this idea that calling and vocation is about work. It's about the daily work that you do. And so that <clears throat> was just infused into the Reformation and it became a way of thinking about this concept. The concept of calling became equated with work. And so by the time we get to 20th century America, what we see is that's still the way that we thought about work. And in the midst of a swell of population growth that had been happening for you know, a couple hundred years at that point, and the expansion of America West and the building of churches and the need for more leaders, what we see is the pendulum begins to swing back. And in America, a lot of people began to talk about calling in very overtly religious ways again. <clears throat> There's a good chance if you grew up in the church like I did, you probably had the sense, maybe no one told you directly, but you had the sense that we, if you wanted your life to really matter for God, then you needed to do certain kinds of work, that there were some kinds of work that were inherently more spiritual, more important than other kinds of work. There was, again, that kind of hierarchy. I remember having the sense that if you really wanted your life to matter, like the most spiritual people were, of course, missionaries and pastors and priests. That was first. And then beyond that, below that, there was kind of this hierarchy of service-oriented work. If you wanted, kind of the next on the ladder were like teachers or doctors or nurses. Uh, and there were bonus points. Like if you were a teacher in a Christian school, that was better than being a teacher in a public school. And if you were a doctor, you know, it was kind of bad that you were rich, but if you did mission trips, <laughs> if you did mission trips to go do medical missions with like Doctors Without Borders, you could elevate your status a little bit. You could be more important. But for sure, those were way more important than business people who made money. And lawyers, I think, were <laughs> like somewhere way down at the bottom. But there was definitely this sense I remember growing up with, <clears throat> and, and this perception is still pervasive. We laugh about it, but it's still pervasive in a lot of churches, in a lot of segments of the church in America. But I'm encouraged that I think the pendulum is swinging back the other direction. In the last 20 to 30 years, there's been movement in the American church to reclaim the inherent dignity of work, of all work, paid and unpaid, and to break down this hierarchy of value and this sacred and secular divide. But it's still so common to hear people talk inside and outside of the church of vocation, or of calling and use those words synonymously with words like work or career or job. And again, when we go back and we look, as we've talked about the last two weeks, we look to the writings of the New Testament, we don't see any of this. We see a singular call, a call to relationship and union with Christ and relationship with him that as we grow in trust and as we grow in our, uh, our faith and in our in our confidence in, in our ability to trust him for the kinds of decisions that we make, our desires and our wants begin to shift and to change. And this transformation is not reserved to one dimension of our life, but it does affect our work. Last week, we looked at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and we, we saw how he talked about this resurrection life that we've been called to that we're to pick our eyes up from just the next step in front of us and look to Christ and to begin to ask, what is God doing and how can I be a part of that? Uh, what is it that God wants in my life and how do I begin to shape and transform my decisions to line up with that? 
Further down in the chapter, I want to pick up where Paul addresses the concept of how this impacts our work. Back to chapter 3 of, of Colossians, picking up in verse 15, we read that Paul writes this. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So Paul tells the Colossians, you've been called. You've been called to peace. Peace is a product of a relationship with God. It's a fruit of the Spirit, he'll later tell us. And you're to allow this core message of Christ to dwell among you. This is not a singular individual calling. This is a calling to us as a people, the people of God. And we're to let this core message of Christ, the message of love, love for God, love for ourselves, love for others, and the world around us to dwell among us, that we would be shaped by it, transformed by it, that our imaginations would be stirred to what that might look like in our everyday life, that our consciences would be challenged and that our desires would be changed. And then he says this, he says, whatever you do, and this, the little, there's a little Greek word there that, that when you translate, it's translated as whatever, and what it means is whatever. Whatever, it means whatever. Whatever you do, anything you do, you should do it in a way that honors Jesus. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In every circumstance, in every opportunity, in every aspect of our life, whatever we do, we're to do it in a way that honors God, that honors Christ. And then Paul launches into a series of, for example, verses. He talks about what this looks like for husbands. He talks about what this looks like for wives. He talk, talks about what this looks like for parents and for children. And he gets into a really culturally complicated verse where he talks about what this means for slaves, for indentured servants, to listen to their masters, and for masters to think about the well-being of their indentured servants or their slaves. And for us, that's hard to hear Paul talking about a slave listening to his master and obeying because he doesn't work for him, he works for God. But he's trying to give a picture for his audience of what this would look like in their daily lives. What would it look like to do whatever you do in a way that honors Christ. And then he circles back to this concept again. Verse 23, he says this, whatever you do, there it is again, whatever, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So does God care about the work that you do? Does he care about the work that I do? Of course he does. He cares about us, all of us, not one dimension of our lives. He cares about all of us. He cares as much about your work as he does about your dating relationships or your marriage or your, your parenting or your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your parents and your extended family. He cares as much about your work as he cares about your volunteer work. He cares about your yard work. He wants you to take care of your house. He cares about all dimensions, all aspects of our lives. It's all important to God. There's not an A team or a B team. Everybody has gifts and abilities and opportunities and ways that we are to live out our lives 
in a way that honors God. God cares about you and he wants to lead you. He wants to lead me towards a flourishing life with him, which touches every aspect of our life, not just one, not just our work. I love the way uh, one of my favorite writers and theologians, a a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in the 40s in Germany. Um, He was a Lutheran, so he had studied a lot about Luther and his perspective on call and vocation. And he saw it differently than Luther. He said, you know, really vocation is about responsibility. Listen to how he says it. This is from from his book, Ethics. Bonhoeffer writes, vocation is responsibility. And responsibility is the whole response of the whole person to, the, to reality as a whole. This is precisely why a myopic self-limitation to one's vocational obligations, such as focusing on work alone, in the narrowest sense, is out of the question. Such limitations would be irresponsibility. So God has called us to himself, and through us, through his body, We have the capacity to touch every dimension of human life through all of the things that we do in all of the different roles that we play, through our work, through our social relationships, through our family relationships, through our neighborhoods, through our engagement in civic life. We have the opportunity to be God's hands and feet as we live out our one true calling to him. Whatever you do, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, just do it to the best of your ability. Do it to honor Christ. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for God, because you are. We all are. And we all have the opportunity to make an impact, regardless of what your job is. I want to take a few minutes at the end. I hope you'll indulge me. I want to share from my own life how these kinds of thoughts have emerged and developed and matured over time and how they've impacted the decisions that I've made related to my life and to my work and how they're still impacting my life and my decisions. Uh, As many of you know, I didn't start out my career in the church. Um, If you'd asked me when I I was a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? Pastor was not the answer. Um, If you're curious, fighter pilot was the answer. (laughs) Um, that was the answer. Um, I have bad eyes. Um, didn't work out. The Air Force did not sense my calling to be a fighter pilot. They did not affirm that. So I studied engineering, and I got a master's in business, and I went into um, the business world. I worked for a big company. I worked for IBM, a uh, really big company, uh, for, about, uh, for about seven years. Um, and you know, I wasn't really walking very closely with God at that point in my life. He didn't have a big part in some of those early decisions because although I grew up in the church, I drifted away. But I started coming back in my 20s, and as I did, um, I began to engage in some of the things we've talked about in this series. I began to really practice my faith for the first time, I think really as an adult for sure. Uh, I began reading my Bible and engaging in disciplines like, like prayer and joining in community with other people and began asking this question, you know, what is it that I want and what is it that, that God desires for me to be faithful to the opportunities, to the education, to the, all the things that, that, that he's put in my hands? What does it look like to be faithful? And the more I got in, in, involved in church and church life and the more I began to really follow and trust God, the more my life began to change in every aspect. And at a work level, I began to get really discontent with my job. 
<clears throat> one of the things about working for a really big company, if you work for a really large company, IBM was about 300,000 employees when I worked for them. And it, I think enterprises that are that large, human organizations that are that big, have a dehumanizing quality. You can become just a very tiny piece of a very large system, a very large machine, and you can feel lost. And I think, um, I think that collided with this romanticism around what it looked like to honor God with my life. And so again, I, I felt like if I really wanted my life to matter, really wanted it to count for Jesus, then I needed to be a pastor or a missionary, so I decided to do both. Um, I left my job at IBM, and I spent a year overseas working with a missions organization, and uh, I was in Kazakhstan for a little while. I was in Russia for a little while after that. And I uh, came back um, from overseas, and I had an opportunity to go back to IBM, and just nothing in me wanted to be part of that. I, I just, the way I said it to a lot of friends was, I just don't fit in that cubicle anymore. I just don't fit in that cubicle anymore. The world was too big. God was too big. And so my church, uh, North Point Community Church in Atlanta, was growing, and they had an opportunity for me to come on staff and offer me a job, and that's what I wanted. I don't know that I particularly felt any strong sense. I didn't have a burning bush moment. And I didn't have any sort of clear sense that this was God's call in my life. It was just the next thing in front of me that I felt like I could do well. I remember talking to one of my mentors shortly after going on staff. And he was an older guy, a guy who'd been in ministry for 20 years at that point. And he said, so when did you first feel called to the ministry? Common question in our line of work. And I was like, well, I don't know that I am. What does that mean? And he said, well, I'll tell you, in my life, that means that regardless of who writes my paycheck, I'm a representative of God wherever I go and what I, whatever I do. I was like, okay, I can sign up for that. And then I you know, kind of told him some of the story I told you. So I worked at that church for about seven years, and it was great. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned that working for church does not solve all the problems that you have uh, if you've worked in business before. Human organizations are human organizations, regardless of whether they're religious or non-religious. And so there was a lot of learning on my part there. And uh, in 2008, about six years into that journey, um, myself and a couple other friends that I worked with, one named Norton and another named Jason, had this crazy idea that we wanted to move across the country to Denver to start a church. Now, I remember part of my motivation was I wanted to get out of Atlanta. I did not like Atlanta very much. It was humid. It was crowded. Traffic sucked. It was, it was just, I just, I mean, every time my wife and I, we have, she has family out here and we would fly there in Wyoming. We would fly to Denver to get to Wyoming. And every time we would get on the plane going back to Atlanta, we'd look at each other and we would say, why are we going back to Atlanta? Like, why are we not? And I remember as we started talking about what would it look like to start a church in Denver? I remember talking to friends and I was trying to sort out, is this selfish? Like, do I want to move to Denver because I like to snowboard and hike and camp and I love the mountains? And a friend of mine looked at me, I remember this, he, we were in small group and he said, well, I don't want to move to Denver. And you do, maybe that means something. I thought, okay, well, that's all the permission I need. So, <laughs> so we moved to Denver in, in 2009, right in kind of the middle of the Great Recession. We quit our jobs at the largest church in America to move to Denver, a place where people don't want to go to church to start a church. <laughs> brilliant business plan, brilliant church planting plan. And it was hard. Those first few years were really challenging and we right away figured out we had a huge asset with three pastors, with three different sets of giftings and wirings and you know all the capacity. We had a huge liability though. We had three full-time pastor salaries. And that was going to kill us. 
And so we decided to cut our salaries and we went part-time. It was a concession at first, but it became part of our identity. You might not know this, but every person who works at New Denver Church has a second job doing something else. Everybody is part-time here. And so that thrust me back into this place. Like, what, what's the most pleasing part of my work to God? Is it the stuff that I do when I work at the church? Or is it all this IT stuff that I'm doing on the side and the consulting work? And, and all the stuff, as my wife likes to say, I had a lot of hobbies that I didn't get paid for um, in my, con my consulting and contracting work. And so we've lived in this world for a long time, and that's been the last 13 years. And three years ago, um, I started working for a friend um, named Matt, who owned a business, a, a staffing and recruiting company. It was a great opportunity to do some consulting work and make a little bit of extra money on the, time, on the side, and it was great. And I was good at it. And we began to grow, and we spun out a small business consulting business last year, and that brought more opportunities. And he had the idea for a new business, and he came to me last year, and he said, hey, have you ever thought about doing this full time? And I said, yeah, actually, I have wondered about, like, what's my arc, the arc of my career in the church? And I said, I don't know when it is, but I, I'll talk to the other leaders at the church, and we'll start figuring it out. So last March, I went to Norton and Emily, and I said, hey, I have a crazy idea. I, I want to stop working on staff at the church but not leave. I want to stop getting paid but I wanna keep doing a lot of things that I've been doing. I wanna become a non-paid pastor and I wanna do this other job as my full-time work. What do you think about that? Norton, who had known me for like 17 years at the time, laughed and he was like, yeah, this is what you do like every five or six years. This is, you need something new. And it's true, like I'm very entrepreneurial and so he wasn't surprised, Emily cried. Um, <laughs> and we started talking about what would it look like for me to transition into a non-paid pastoral role. And so that's what we're going to do. So this is my 14th year at New Denver. And at the end of this month, um, I go on sabbatical. Every seven years, our elders have decided that we need to take a break and step away from our work here anyway and get perspective and think about what the season ahead looks like. So in a few weeks, I'm going to go on sabbatical. Sabbat I keep saying sabbatical because I have another job that I'm going to go to. But I'm going to step away from my work here at New Denver and I'll be gone July, August, uh, June, July, and August, and then I'll be back in September, but I won't be getting paid. So I'll still be doing a lot of the same things. I've told the staff that um, you can ask me to do anything that I've done in the past. There's a long list of things I'm willing to do, things I don't want to do anymore, and things we can talk about. And so there's a lot we have to figure out, and I don't know what that'll look like, but you'll probably see me doing a lot of the same things, teaching and preaching and meeting with people to talk about their life and what does it look like to live that life with God um, hopefully doing some, some weddings and premarital and that kind of stuff. I still want to do that. Um, I just won't get paid. Bonus for the church, right? Like, I'm going to do all this for free. So you probably have a lot of questions. I'm going to wrap up because this is going long. But I wanted everybody to know this. And you, you probably have some questions. I'm going to hang around afterwards. If you have more questions, I'm glad to talk to you. But I want to address a few right up front. Number one, my calling isn't changing. Just my job. Because my only calling is to walk in relationship with Jesus and to allow him to transform every aspect of my life. And that's not changing. That's not changing. Second, you might be wondering, is there another story? Like, is there something else? Like, usually when pastors leave their job, there's something weird that happened. Like, did I get caught doing something that I wasn't supposed to do and they're just allowing me to resi resign to save face? No, that didn't happen. Did Norton and I have a fight or Emily and I, was there a power struggle and they voted me out? No, that didn't happen. 
Am I just leaving to make more money? Actually, no, I'm gonna make less money because I'm going into a startup for at least the foreseeable future. So I'm not great at picking jobs that make a lot of money. Um, that has not been a gift of mine. Um, this is the only story, the one that I'm sharing. Uh, I am as committed as I ever have been to the mission and to the vision of New Denver. This is my church. It will continue to be my church. And I'll continue to serve in the ways that I can and to look for opportunities to create space for other people now. Like part of me leaving create space for other people to come on staff and exercise their gifts and to be the person that we need for the future. So I don't even know what that's going to look like. That's for Norton and Emily to fig figure out. So as we close, I want to pray. <clears throat> I want to pray for myself included that all of us would seek to do whatever it is that we do, to work at it with all of our heart as if we were working for God because we are in whatever we do. Let's pray. God, thank you that we have freedom in you, that we don't have to worry about getting it right, that you guide our choices and our decisions in every aspect of our life, sometimes even in ways that we can't see or don't know. So God, help us to lean into our first and one and only true calling, to love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all our souls, and all our strength, and to love others as ourselves. May you transform us to be the kind of people that do that out of the overflow of our desires. May we be people who seek to love because that's who you've made us to be, because that's who you're like. It's what you're like. It's who you are. May we do the work that you've given us to do in humility and with confidence that you go with us in whatever it is that we do. And may we do it all in a way that glorifies you. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.